Hello there, and welcome to the All Day Digital Podcast, where we talk to industry executives and thought leaders to get their perspective on a wide range of factors shaping the communications industry. This podcast is brought to you by CoBank's Knowledge Exchange Group, and I'm your host, Jeff Johnston. On today's episode, we get to hear from Mike Romano, Executive Vice President of NTCA, to get his perspective on the $65 billion allocated for broadband from the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act. This is a precedent-setting amount of federal support to help bridge the digital divide in rural America, and the program has been designed to address some of the shortcomings found in previous government efforts. And while there's lots to like here, there are some red flags that people should be aware of. Mike's deep understanding of rural broadband and the overall structure of the program makes him the ideal person to talk about this enormous opportunity for rural America. So, without any further ado, Peter Patter, let's hear what Mike has to say. Mike Romano, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. I'm glad to be able to join you and talk about all things rural broadband. Wonderful, wonderful. Excellent. Well, hey, let's talk about the uh, the, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And specifically, uh, for this conversation, the, the $65 billion that was allocated to rural broadband as a part of that act. Maybe you can just give us a high-level background on, on what, it, you know, what that is and, and where is that money in, intended to go? Sure, yeah. It's certainly a very exciting uh, um, once-in-a-generation, certainly unprecedented level of investment in broadband issues writ large. Um, it's actually broken down into several buckets within that $65 billion. I think the biggest one that most people have focused upon certainly is the, the BEAD program, the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program, which is roughly $42.5 billion, which goes to NTIA, which is an agency within the U.S. Department of Commerce. Um, although ultimately, all those funds will flow then to states and territories to then give out for broadband deployment. And those will go to certain areas that are unserved or underserved, as I'm sure we can talk about a little bit. There's also within that... Um, it, it, other pools of money, and I'm not going to get the exact numbers uh, out here, but it's essentially there's a significant amount of money for what's called the Affordable Connectivity Program, or ACP, which is a program that is essentially a, almost a success in many ways to the traditional FCC Lifeline program focused on making sure that broadband is more affordable, particularly for an expanded base of low-income consumers who may have had um, adoption challenges with respect to broadband in the past. Then there are pockets of money in there for uh, USDA to do its own deployment program uh, through ReConnect. There is funding for tribal broadband through NTIA again. There is funding for digital equity plans. Um, so, so there are different pockets of money aimed at solving different pieces of the broadband puzzle. Uh, and But of course, the BEAD program is, I think, the one that's grabbed the most attention because it's two-thirds of the money in the bill. Great, great. So as I understand it, the way the federal government's going about distributing money uh, in the BEAD program is is different than what the FCC has done before in, say, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund uh, program. So maybe you can just kind of help me understand a little bit about, you know, the differences between what we're doing with BEAD versus what we've done with RDOF in the past. Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, in some ways you can look at it as uh, BEAD is intended to be a correction for some of the, if you will, sins of Ardoff. Uh, in, in some ways, it may be an overcorrection as well. So we can unpack that a little bit. But but I think what you're seeing with BEAD is, unlike, let me step back, Ardoff was an auction program, a pure competitive bidding 
program um, lowest price won. Essentially, whoever was willing to deliver the best broadband for the lowest possible price won. Now, there was waiting in that based upon what speeds you were promising to deliver and the like. But it was essentially an auction where the, where the, the lowest bid won. Um, BEAD is different. BEAD, um, we don't know yet the exact scoring criteria that will come, but BEAD is not being administered through the federal agency in the end. As I mentioned earlier, it's actually going from the Department of Commerce to the states. The states will put forward applications based upon plans they have previously submitted to the Department of Commerce that basically describe how they will use the funds and what kinds of projects they'll put the funds toward. The states will in turn then essentially award those funds to sub-grantees that are being called essentially providers or um, municipalities who want to get into the business or counties who want to get into the business, um, but in the end, providers of broadband who will use these state funds as uh, an ability to cover their capex or at least a portion of it in deploying networks that will then deliver the services that meet the NTIA criteria. Um, but again, it's a grant program going through the states, probably a different scoring rubric than just pure lowest bid. I think they'll give weight for things like um, what kinds of uh, what kinds of services you're offering, what what, um, what level of uh, what level of affordability you're making available. Um, different different factors will go into this, and again, a lot of them still to be determined. But it won't be purely a, a lowest bidder wins program. So in that regard, plus the fact it goes through the states. Those are two of the biggest differences. The one other difference I'll just note quickly in the form of potential overcorrection is a lot of folks complained, and TCA included, that the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, uh, the FCC did not do a sufficient amount of vetting of bidders prior to allowing them into the auction. It only vetted them after they had already won, which presented problems when they found out that some of them couldn't perform. There is a lot of... Um, upfront accountability in the bead program, which uh, I think is a good thing in many ways, but also it remains to be seen if some of that will be a deterrent or maybe an overcorrection in the form of some of the things they ask for that, that may be more difficult for providers to, to deliver upon. Yeah, that, that that's a really interesting point. So I guess the FCC faced uh, some criticism with RDOF, uh, A, with who they uh, awarded money to or attempted to, I guess, award money to. Uh, and then B, if I have it right, um, they allocated money to areas that maybe didn't necessarily uh, need connect or need, need it. I mean, there was connectivity there already. So I, I'm, I'm curious if you think maybe on the second point, uh, um, do, do you think with the states playing a more active role and presumably they would have – uh, more local knowledge of where there is and isn't sufficient broadband versus at a federal level. I mean, do you think that we could see some, you know, some improvements in terms of the markets where the money's allocated? So it's actually going to where it really needs to go as opposed to where maybe there already is broadband? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. That's another form of accountability you bring up that that uh, is important to note is, you know, the phrase that was used was um, dollars before deployment, uh, maps before money or money before maps. You, you know, in RDOF, essentially, the FCC had some idea of where broadband was and was not, but it was based upon a set of maps that everybody knew to be flawed uh, in some respects as well. And again, as, as I think a correction in this process, what Congress actually required NTIA and the states to do is to use updated maps that the FCC, pursuant to a whole separate law, had to create. Um, those maps are in the process of being created. In fact, as we're recording this today, we're a couple days away from the deadline for providers to submit their information for those new maps. Um, and, and then, but then there are a series of challenge processes that go in behind that 
that ultimately should lead to better maps still. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because I think it's an important piece. But the two challenge processes are, one, the very fabric, the very set of locations that providers are identifying as being able to serve, that in itself, which the FCC created or its contractor created, will be challenged. So ultimately, you should have a much better identification of literally parcel by parcel, which locations can and can't be served. And then there will be a separate challenge process for the providers who submit data. Others can come in and say, no, no, I don't believe that provider can serve this area at that speed. So presuming, this is what I want to come back to, presuming that the Department of Commerce, NTI, and the states wait for that process to play itself out, including those challenge processes, we should have much better maps. That's helpful. So it sounds like if I think about some of the positives of of this program, this BEAT program, um, the upfront vetting, as you've um, articulated, certainly seems to be a good thing um, relative to what we've done in the past. So, you know, that that's great. And hopefully through the processes that we're going through now, we'll have better maps. Is there anything else that as you look at this program, Mike, that you'd say, wow, that's that's really good. I'm glad that, you know, uh, they've structured it that way, that we're focusing on these issues of these opportunities up front. Sure. I, I think the one other thing I would highlight as a, as a positive in this is um, leveraging states. I mean, states, as you mentioned earlier, they're closer to the consumer. And now, again, they're going to be using the FCC maps in the first instance, but then they actually have, a, even down the line, a further opportunity to use their own mapping data, too, to further refine things. So I think in that regard, um, they're going to be, um, I think, well-positioned to, to identify areas in need. I think even more importantly, just the incentives. So you know, I think folks always, you know, federal agencies, they want to do their jobs well. But um, when you're in a state or a locality, um, you sleep in the bed you make. And so to the extent that you make bad decisions about broadband, you live with the consequences of it. Your constituencies directly live with the consequences of it. So there's a different level of um, accountability or a different kind of incentive there than if you're sort of, you know, legislating from on high in Washington. So I, I do think that that focus more, pushing it out more toward the states will allow them to make better decisions about what kinds of companies they partner with and um, what kinds of networks they choose to fund. Because as we've seen, again, especially with some of the federal programs in the past, you've had poor decisions made about which providers to fund and what kinds of networks to fund, both of which ultimately have turned out to be bad bets and, and have led to us needing to have this conversation every few years about how to get better broadband to these places. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that fragmented approach at the state level to what you're saying makes total sense to me. I mean, and and I guess, you know, different states have different capabilities and so forth. I mean, just any thoughts on, you know, where we are, like, do most of the states have a broadband office or processes in place to be able to support this program? Or um, I'm sure some do and some don't. But I mean, any any thoughts or, you know, uh, around where we are at, at the state level? Yeah, it's it's a bad joke, but uh, the states are all over the map on this. Um, you know, it's uh, they. Some states have you know, done multiple rounds of grant programs in the past, and so have a good amount of expertise in this area. Other states are in a very different stage of evolution, where they're just hiring up, or, or maybe they had people lost them, and now they have to hire up again. Um, so, so they are in very different places. Um, I know that NTA has devoted a lot of attention and resources to trying to make sure states have. Um, guidance and, and expertise. NTI has tried to set up a very structured process. 
Uh, I was fortunate enough to join about seven or eight other sort of leading the National Trade Associations at a meeting of the State Broadband Leadership Network, which NTIA convened uh, in Denver a few weeks ago. Um, just to, and I know they're doing these kinds of meetings to basically help the states ramp up and be ready and know what they're, they're going to run into. But yeah, some states are going to run into problems with this for sure. And there are still some very important unanswered questions in terms of implementation of these new programs that still have to be answered, some of which are going to need to be answered by NTIA and some of which are actually going to be need to be answered by the states themselves. So we're in a very um, exciting and uncertain time right now. And, you know, I really think um, there's still work to be done and some time to be spent before we will know how well this program delivers in each state. Of course, you know, I say that that's even just to get the program set up. We won't really know, and this is often a problem in broadband funding programs generally, we won't really know how well they do until you actually see the broadband turned up. People have a, a propensity to basically declare victory the moment they issue the dollars out the door. Um, we've got a lot to do to get there. We've got a lot to do after that. Yeah, no, for, for sure. So th this might be a, a difficult question to answer, given all the uncertainty that you've talked about, and we're still trying to pull this program together at a more of a tactical level. But I mean, as we sit here today, is there anything, Mike, that you look at and you say, ah, you know, I might have some concerns here, or maybe have some, some concerns there with the way the rules have been written, or the way you see things maybe going in a certain direction that, you know, could be cause for concern? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Jeff. There are a, there are a series of questions that are still open, um, and they're open by design. NTIA uh, published a, a 98 page or so notice of funding opportunity to the states, telling them sort of this is how it works, and to, you know, the industry as a whole. Um, but for 98 pages of text, it left a whole bunch of things still to be decided. Uh, and, and some of the most critical ones, I think, uh, and I again looking at it through a prism of rural communities and providers in particular. One of the biggest question marks out there is how the agency, NTIA, will define what is a high-cost area. And this is an important factor for two reasons. One is it's a factor in determining how much money each state gets. There's a set-aside of money. Um, so each state gets a full allocation, but then there's a set-aside of money for high-cost areas. And that, that, that's going to determine your, you know, how many high-cost locations you have as compared to the nationwide total. That's going to be the separate allocation for the high cost money, which is about 10% of that $42.5 billion. So how that gets defined is really important because that could mean the difference, a big difference for states, you know, in Montana and, and Texas and others vis-a-vis um, -vis more urban states. So, so that's one, I think, very important question uh, or re, um, sort of use of the high cost uh, term. The other place the high cost term factors in is in determining how much matching needs to be provided. So there's a matching requirement that says you have to provide a certain percentage of match, 25%, up at least 25% if you're participating in the BEAD program and, and you, know, you can get a grant for the remainder. But that is relieved in high cost areas. So how you define high cost areas becomes very important to the economics of a project and the financing of a project because you may or may not need additional loans or capital um, depending on how, whether you're serving a high cost area as it's defined. So, so that's one example of an important issue. The other issue I'll throw out, and there are several, but the other one I'll throw out is um, what's an extremely high cost location? This is really important because what NTIA did was they basically said they believed that the statute that created this program prioritized certain kinds of scalable networks. And they basically have interpreted that as fiber. Um, but they said there may be locations that are extremely high cost, such that at that point, it's not 
cost effective to deliver fiber to those locations. So we'll basically wipe out the fiber preference at that point. Um, each state gets to choose its own extremely high cost location threshold. And that could go a long way towards determining how far you get fiber out there. And, and the reason I think this is important is just going back into prior federal programs, you see prior federal programs have basically said, well, since we can't get the best kinds of networks to everybody, we're going to try to just do the you know a bare minimum to everyone. And as a result, <laughs> every time we come back in two or three years and say, well, shoot, what we built doesn't serve well enough for 75, 80% of the people, we need to do this again. And so- you know, there are crosswinds blowing about how you want to set that extremely high cost threshold that, that really could have long-term implications for what kinds of networks get built. So, okay, so just just to drill down a little bit, Mike, on the, the high cost area, so I want to make sure I, at least I understand it. So is that something that would, would it be a, a cost, kind of a cost per passing, for example, that that would be set at the federal level, and then each state would then, you know, get allocated money based on on that federal number. Is that is that my my getting that correctly? Or I think that's right. I mean, it'd probably be like an average cost per location or something like that. And they'll say basically that, you know, one way of doing it. And again, they haven't described the methodology by which they'll do it. But one probably easy way of doing it would be to say that it's essentially everywhere where the FCC has deemed something eligible for high cost universal service funding since they already use this as a term high cost. And that way you've got some interagency coordination. So that's one way of potentially doing it is to say, basically, what are the areas that are unserved or underserved that would be qualifying for FCC high cost funding if funding were made available there? But you're right. Even that ultimately turns on a look at, at a census block basis, for example, what's the average cost per location in that census block? So, so I could see something like that. Okay. Okay. No, that that that's helpful. And then, uh, just to follow up on the extremely high cost areas. So I guess, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or if I'm not thinking about this the right way. But I guess the risk would be, if if say a state were to set that number maybe too low, then you know we wouldn't be necessarily uh, in line with the spirit of what the federal government's trying to do, which is push fiber as deep as you possibly can. Uh, into these markets so that you're future proofing these networks as opposed to you know doing something with fixed wireless which presumably that would be a technology that would be used in an extremely high cost scenario it, it, am i thinking about that right or yes you are I, I think that's exactly the crux of this is um this becomes that tipping point where you basically if you will fly the fly the white flag and say i i don't think i can deliver fiber here, and I'm going to have to use an alternative technology. Um, again, and, and I know it's a hard question to judge, you know, where do you sort of block the line between wanting to get the best possible networks to as many people as possible, but potentially not having enough money to reach everyone. Um, and, and, you know, you've got certainly a lot of industry players pushing this uh, idea around in different directions. But I do think, you know, the key point you make is that the statute itself in the first instance really called for priority broadband projects. And we're never going to see this kind of investment in broadband, um, certainly a long time to come. You know, I think it's not, it's not unfair to characterize it a once-in-a-generation investment. So you know, do you want to not use this opportunity, capitalize upon this opportunity to the fullest to get the best possible networks out as far as you can? And again, I look back to the prior programs. I mean, every time we've seen a federal program adopt an incrementalist approach to this, you know, the FCC over the last 12 years 
had a 4-1 standard, then a 10-1 standard, then a 25-3 standard. And each time, it's helped to get some better broadband out there, but it's also caused people to look back and say, what a waste of money. And, and you know, we just don't want to go there again. But, you know, there is concern. Some states will look at it and say, well, I don't think I've got enough. So I'm going to do basically, you know, something less than the best to everybody. And, you know, we'll, we'll figure out how to solve for mediocrity again in five years. Great. Okay. So uh, you're obviously in regular discussion with, with, uh, with operators. So I'm just curious, I mean, what, what advice are you or what advice kind of would you give operators um, who presumably, you know, many of them want to take advantage of this program? Um, clearly, there's a lot of outstanding issues and uncertainty at this point. Um, so maybe there's only so much you can do at this point. But what, what kind of advice would you give um, those folks who are trying to figure out how to position their business to best take advantage of, of these federal dollars? So the first thing I would say is, um, I know they're imperfect, but look at the current maps that are out there one way or another, figure out where those indicate there are unserved or underserved areas. And unserved would be those lacking even just 25.3. Underserved would be those lacking 100 over 20 broadband. Take a look, start to game plan, think about, you know, maybe those areas won't be on the map in the end, maybe they will be. But what kind of a business plan, well, what kind of interest do I have? But then what kind of a business plan could I make to invest in a network in those areas? What would it take as far as CapEx? What would it take to sustain it over you know, a 20-year useful life plus a 20-year-plus 20 useful life? Um, and, and am I interested in doing that? Now, again, those maps will be refined. You may find some of those areas come off. You may find some other areas come on. But look at those areas, especially, I think, for those areas that are, are neighboring or naturally sort of areas where one can extend an existing network. Really, I think it's it's worth people taking a look at that, both, frankly, candidly, as an offensive and a defensive measure, right? I mean, it, it's an opportunity for expansion into new markets that I may not serve today. It may also be a way of helping to make sure that I've got an even larger footprint that is then harder for somebody else to come in and potentially challenge in a way, too. So I think there's there, there are multiple reasons for providers to be taking a look at this now at least starting to sketch this out, talking with their management team, talking with their boards, talking with their lenders and, and, and you know, folks like you all, of course, and basically saying, what, you know, what can I do to potentially enter this space and, and what would I need to do to be able to do it or start looking at it probably in the spring of 2023? Yeah, because I've always sort of believed, I mean, that sort of that first mover advantage with a, with a fiber network is pretty sticky, right? I mean, if you go into a new market where it's, underserved or unserved and you go in and deploy a fiber network and have good customer service, I think you could be in pretty good shape for, for quite a while, I would think. Uh, it would be tough for someone to overbuild you with another fiber network, I, I would think, anyway. Right, right. I mean, there's a reason these places have sat unserved or underserved. And, and if somebody now coming in looks at you as a you know, somebody who got part of their funding, a significant part of their funding covered by a program intended to serve those areas... I would love to see the economic business case they can make to be the second network in that area that could not even sustain one previously without government intervention. So I, I think it does position people well, um, and it should factor into their analysis. But again, both, I think, as an expansion opportunity and as what it means for even their existing footprint, where perhaps it helps them essentially build an even bigger, more um, impressive uh, coverage area. Yeah, great. And then what about on the state side, on the uh, on the state broadband office side? I mean, what could or what should 
uh, operators be doing with their with their state officials to you know be able to execute on this on this whole plan? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that actually because um, we I meant to mention we've been um, we worked with the Fiber Broadband Association on something called the Broadband Infrastructure Playbook. And we um, actually have now done two iterations of it. One was prior to NTIA announcing their rules, just trying to interpret the law and get state broadband offices um, up and running. And then the second was post-NTIA notice. Um, We've delivered that to the governor's offices. We've delivered that to state broadband offices. We've delivered that to providers, delivered it to the state telecom associations with whom we work. And it's a great soup to nuts um, sort of flippable walkthrough manual of everything from how do you start to stand up a broadband office to how do you apply for and then implement the BEAD program. And and I think that that's a great resource. And I would encourage providers to think about that, look at that, start talking to the state broadband offices about what do you need to do for BEAD? What information do they need from you to help them prepare for BEAD? Um, And I think honestly, too, the um, the B program really, it is going to be this collaborative process because the states are the applicants, but the subgrantees are folks they work with. Well, Mike, look, we've covered a lot of material here. You're clearly the right guy to have on the podcast to talk about this stuff. So thanks uh, for your willingness to, to participate today. But is there anything else that uh, you know, I didn't ask or we didn't talk about that you would think we should touch on before we uh, wrap it up? Uh, the only thing I guess I would say is, um, and, and this goes again to sort of figuring out the finance or economics of all this. Uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement right now about um, the CapEx components of these programs, the ability to, re- to cover some of the upfront costs of investing in these areas. And that's always been a, you know, a real gating item to getting broadband out into some of these rural areas. But we do know from decades of experience in delivering rural telecommunications, dating back to rural telephony and through rural broadband, that um, sustainability is an important piece too. And so I would just encourage folks, and I know that folks do this as part of their prudent business planning anyway. And, and certainly as uh, you, know, you all working with the CoBank look to see sort of how do we make sure that these things continue to stay in place and from a, a rural sort of community development perspective. But um, it's something I just would let folks know that we continue to impress upon policymakers is the importance not only of getting it out there, but keeping it out there and keeping it affordable and allowing these communities to do the best possible things with it. And so um, the more that I think folks can think about um, not only selling the deployment aspects of what they're doing, but then getting the community excited about the use cases for it. That in turn, I think will have a good effect with these state offices as well with states to get them excited about what you're going to do. So I I think there's a holistic surround sound element to this, getting local and state buy-in on this in a way that goes just beyond the application page or or figuring out the financing of it. Great, great. Well, look, I think uh, think we'll leave it there, Mike. Um, It was a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for... uh, for being on the podcast. Well, great. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. Appreciate uh, all Cobank does with us and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation at some point in the future. I think the fact that NTIA is trying to ensure that networks built with bead money are future-proof to the extent feasible is a very good thing, especially when you think about the rapid digital transformation our society is going through. However, the uncertainty around what constitutes high cost and extremely high cost areas could run counter to the spirit of the act. I also think that with getting the states involved in allocating funds will result in a more effective use of these funds given their local knowledge and the level of accountability the states have towards their constituents. Hey, thanks for joining us today and watch out for the next episode of the All Day Digital Podcast. 
The information provided in this podcast is not intended to be investment, tax, or legal advice and should not be relied upon by listeners for such purposes. The information contained in this podcast has been compiled from what CoBank regards as reliable sources. However, CoBank does not make any representation or warranty regarding the content and disclaims any responsibility for the information materials, third-party opinions, and data included in this podcast. In no event will CoBank be liable for any decision made or actions taken by any person or persons relying on the information contained in this podcast.